When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to another episode of Believe in the Press Row. It is a uh, Thursday morning, late morning here in Seattle. Uh, still under curfew where I live. Not right now, but we are nightly. Awesome times to be uh, <laughs> to be living. You know, like, if it isn't the corona, it's, it's the curfew. So I can't wait to see what they throw at us next. Um, really thrilled to be joined today by uh, a voice that we should be hearing every day right now. Uh, that warms, you know, there, there, there's few voices in, in my mind in sports that, that bring bring a, a feeling and a place as well as this person's does. And, and he wasn't on the job for a long time. We've got a lot of talk about, um, but you hear the voice and you I automatically can smell natural grass, uh, peanuts, stale beer, and grumpy sweaty men uh, in that order. <laughs> Joe Siddle, one of the voices of the Toronto Blue Jays joins us. Joe, how are you? Doing very well, Jonah. Thank you. I am uh, I'm in Windsor, Ontario, and um, grateful that we're in a pretty good place right now. Um, yeah, didn't get impacted too harshly by the virus. And then, of course, with everything else happening in the world, uh, pretty grateful to be in the place that we are. My wife, Tamara, and I are home. We have two children at home, another daughter not too far away, about 25 minutes away from us. And how much are you missing the daily commute into Toronto? <laughs> That's a great drive along the 401. I've done, you know, it. I've done it a billion times. It could be the world's most boring drive. It, it is, but you know, it's, I, I'm, when I'm doing it, I'm, I'm excited because I'm in the car either getting home for an off day after a Sunday day game at the Rogers Center or from the studio, or I'm getting in the car maybe on a Tuesday morning after the Monday off day and heading back to Toronto and going straight to work and uh, getting prepared for a ball game. So for me, it's not bad and I've grown accustomed to it, but it, it is very nice to be that close to where I work to be able to sneak home on an awful lot of off days. And, uh, yeah, listen, like, we should be hearing a lot of you right now, um, and we're not. How tough is that on you? It's funny, you know, when people ask me that question, the first thing I think about is it just feels like the off-season for me, except we're in June, <laughs> and it's not supposed to be the off-season. When I'm home in the off-season, I do a lot of relaxing, and my wife and I will travel a little bit. But, you know, a lot of stuff around the house, yard work, and I'm not a handyman by any means, but I like to do whatever I can. So it's just an enjoyable downtime for a few months. But now we're doing it, and I'm home here in good weather and doing it. So you get to enjoy the backyard a little bit more, and just the, the whole concept of being at home, it's very different. I'm certainly enjoying it, but, yeah, we'd all, we'd all rather be working, and we'd rather be seeing Major League Baseball, no question. And were you, were you born and raised in Windsor? I was. Both my wife and I were born and raised like within three kilometers of where we live right now. So we basically stayed in the same neighborhood. And how does a, how does a kid growing up in Windsor, of all places, find his way to becoming a Major League Baseball player? It is not exactly the hotbed of baseball, I would think. I don't know how it happened, Jonas. So I, I don't even have an answer for you. The way it happened was I was a kid, like a lot of kids play a lot of sports growing up, and you're playing at the park all the time. We always played home run derby at Central Park, which is not too far away from where I live right now. We played strikeout. In our day, we called it strikeout when you put the box on the, the school wall. We don't see many of those anymore. But I just love playing all those different sports. By the time I got in elementary school, you know, soccer season, you played soccer. It was volleyball, you played volleyball. Basketball came along, you played basketball. By the time I got to high school, it was football in the fall, basketball in the winter, and then baseball in the spring and on into the summer. So I was basically doing three sports. Now, when I went to high school, I wasn't even necessarily thinking post-secondary athletic career at all. I was just playing sports because I loved to play. And remember, this is 1985. I graduated high school. So you're talking early 80s. It was just a very different world then in a lot of ways. But I played football in the fall. I remember in grade nine, 
I was out on the practice field behind our high school and, you know, a grade nine or you're not going to see the field much and you just go work out with the defensive backs and maybe some special teams. So I did, I, I hated it. It wasn't very fun. First time I had played football. I didn't play minor football. It was just the, you know, some of my buddies were going out for the football team. So I did too. So much. So I was thinking of an excuse to how can I tell the coach that I can't do this anymore, that I basically have to quit. And the best thing I could come up with was that I had a paper route. The newspapers then were delivered after school, like at three, three 30. So I could say it's a job. Isn't, wouldn't that work out well? And just say, you know, my job's just getting in the way I can't do this. Because by the time October rolls around, and you've got some cold, rainy afternoons on the football field, and you're in grade nine, standing around doing nothing. Before I could build up the courage, if you want to call it that, to quit, he comes up to me, our head coach, one day at the practice, and he says, I want you to work out with the quarterbacks today. And I kind of <laughs> went, quarterbacks? Wow, I thought that was pretty cool. That's something I know I would love, just because I know playing yeah. in the yard, it was awesome. So I did that. Well, by my next year, and of course, I'm showing my Canadiana here by saying grade nine and grade 10 yeah, as I'm opposed to my <laughs> freshman and sophomore years. But I started working up the quarterbacks in my second year of high school, ended up getting into some games, played more, went on to play high school football. And it was literally when football season was ending, whether you made it to the playoffs or not, the day football ended, I was in the gym trying out for the basketball team. And that happened throughout my whole high school career when basketball ended. Baseball started up a little bit, but it was my final year in high school that my coach came up to me on our back practice field one day after practice. And again, I remember like this, these days, no way was I think my plan was to go to the university of Windsor, which is literally in the backyard of my high school. You can see it and probably play football. I had met with the football coach there, probably play football there. And I was planning on probably getting into faculty of education and maybe being a high school teacher. That was what I thought my future was going to hold. So he asked me one day, my football coach, what would you think of going over to the U.S. on a football scholarship? And I'm thinking, well, I, I mean, sounds cool. I don't know. What, what do you think, coach? <laughs> and he said, because there's a school, Central Michigan University, that they've seen you play, they've seen some tapes, and they're very interested. And they might be offering you like a full-ride football scholarship. And I'm, I mean, I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. Okay, that, now it's sounding even better. And sure enough, they contacted me, came over one, and they offered me a full-ride football scholarship. So it happened fast. I jumped at it because I thought it was a great opportunity. And I went to Central Michigan. It was my freshman year. I was registered as a quarterback, so didn't play at all. Played in the spring game. But then after the spring game, I came home and played baseball locally here in Windsor, like I always had since I was seven years old. Like in a beer league? No, no. This was like in our travel group. It was, it was pretty competitive. So I was probably, what, 18, 19 at the time. So it was called the Windsor Selects. And – I was home in the summer playing with them and I got a call one afternoon from a, a local expo, Montreal Expo Scout, and they were hosting a camp uh, locally. And they said, we'd like you to come out. And again, I'm, I was oblivious. I was thinking, okay, yeah, sure. Whatever. Sounds cool. And he said, bring a couple of buddies if you want, but it's an open tryout camp. And they used to do these all over locally around. I'm sure they do them all over the U S too. So I went and apparently I had a good couple of days and I'm getting a call from the director of Canadian scouting who was running the camp. And they want to sign me to a professional baseball contract. This was the end of July. And I was like, I think August 15th, two weeks away from going back to school for two a day football practices and classes starting up at central Michigan. And they said, so I was very naive. I didn't really get how this worked. And I, the guy, the scout on the phone said, no, like, I think we wanted like maybe meet with your parents and explain how this works and talk to yourself. They came over, took us dinner, explained everything, and, and I had a decision on my hands. And I think I took about a week to talk to some people and talk to my parents. What did your, your parents say? My parents were funny. My, my dad was a guy that was he, was, he was one of those go-for-it guys. He was take a gamble, take a risk. You know, you got to find out. And my mother was just whatever you want to do, son. You know, she was great. So huh. I remember being in the kitchen one day, and it's funny you ask that question because I haven't told this story very much at all. But I will remember my dad looking at me and saying, I think you got to take a shot. And it was a shot because I was given up four years, possibly five since I was registered of education and a shot to play football. Who knows if anything would have panned out as a quarterback, maybe in the Canadian Football League, whatever. But I, um, I ultimately made the decision. I, the, the basis of my decision was always that school would always be there. Whereas as a Canadian, this is before we had to, Canadians had to go through the draft now. I just thought this could be my one and only shot to be, play, play baseball professionally. I loved all sports. But, wait, wait, but, hang, on, but hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> I told you before I wasn't going to interrupt, but you're speaking a foreign language. You've played 
high school football. You get a full ride scholarship to the U.S. You pay, you play in an advanced pre-beer league baseball. And, and you're thinking to yourself, this could be my only shot to play professional baseball. Like, you're well, leaving stuff out, Joe. Like, there's not, not there's many no people. Way. Not many people got the opportunity to play baseball. Uh, like none? Like no, none? but even like, especially <laughs> locally, like from where we were from, you know, like in the U.S., you go to high school, you might get drafted out of high school. I know you have to be really, really exceptional. But I mean, we're talking like signing as an amateur free agent out of some camp that they hosted. So again, but, I was but pretty Joe, like, you know, like parents invest tons of dough in, in programs and house leagues and coaches and travel teams and not, not in 1987 they didn't <laughs> not in 1987 Jonah. i know but I'm you don't you. like i want to know how many people go from like never playing significant baseball from college scholarship to oh this could be my only shot at professional but like that is so hilarious it, it is crazy when you say that. And I mean, I don't want to, like, the, the baseball league I grew up in, it was like your travel AAA travel caliber. It wasn't Fine. like, yeah, if you want to call it pre-beer league, but it's, it was competitive. We played in Come Canadian on. championships. What percentage, what percentage of the kids that you played with ever got a sniff at anything? Not many. You know who won? You'll know the name is Stubby Clapp. Stubby okay. Clapp is from our area. Probably okay. one of the more notable names. Uh, Reno Bertoya. Like, we, we can count them on one hand, right? Like, it's, and not. That's my point. You're right on. So remember you asked me this question about 10 minutes ago and I said, I don't know. That's why I don't know. For some reason, I got invited to this camp. So okay. obviously these Expo Scouts saw me play locally and they said, we want to take a better look. I think I had two really good days at the camp, they said, right? So I was a, I was a defensive-minded catcher, left-handed hitting catcher. And back in those days, I could hit a little bit. And I think I had a really good couple of days, hit some home runs at the tryouts. And normally what they do is they take kids from these camps and bring them to Montreal. So they'll take maybe one or two kids from all the camps they host around Canada, bring them to the Big O in Montreal to Olympic Stadium, then have another camp, and they might sign a couple. Well, they didn't even invite me there. They just signed me on the spot. So, so, what, is that, what, is, so, so what does that mean, you got signed? What does that mean for you? That means Obviously, I got you're a, not going back to school. Def, that was the biggest thing is because I was giving up that four, possibly five years of education and a shot at playing football. So signed right away, went to instructional league because this was late July. So, so I went straight to All right, so I'm going to ask. You don't have to answer. How much was the contract? $10,000. Up front? Up front. Signed, signed for 10. In fact, I think they gave me five then and five the next year to break up the tax years. <laughs> okay. Signed for 10000 U.S. dollars. Okay, so, so you go to the Instructional League. Go to Instructional League and I'm whatever. West Palm Beach, Florida. And you're, West, are you property of the Montreal Expos then? Yes, yes. Once you sign, you property the Expos. The Expos shared a facility with the Atlanta Braves down there, his old municipal stadium in West Palm Beach. Yeah. And that's where he had instruction league and spring training. Big League camp was there. And as a catcher, you know, spring training camps, big league camps, they always need extra bodies, catchers catching bullpen. So I was fortunate. I think it was after my first or second year in the minor leagues, I was invited to big league camp for several years in a row. So that was pretty cool. So when you're there, even, you know, even back then, 10 grand wasn't a ton of dough. It was more yeah. than zero. What are you living off of? So I was still living at home. This would have been 87. So I was living at home. I had a steady girlfriend, my high school sweetheart. We'd been dating since like 10th grade. And she was at the University of Windsor, but she was going to the University of Toronto for medical school. Okay. So she was heading that way. I was embarking on this professional baseball career. Both come from good old Catholic families here. So, you know, the last thing we could do at those days was live together. So we decided to get married. <laughs> so, so we got married the next fall. Naturally. In yeah. So in 1989, <laughs> you know, what happened is because I went to instruction linger to go play for my season. Well, when I was coming home, I'm coming home, staying with my parents in Windsor and she's right. at school at the University of Toronto. So we're like, forget this. So we got married in 89, pretty young. We're both like 20 and 21. Okay. And so all of a sudden, so you then get a sniff with the Expos. Well, like it was 93. My first call-up was in 93, so I started in Jamestown, New York. And the New York Penn League was my first season. Mm -hmm. Rockford, Illinois, in the Midwest League was my second season. 1990 was my third season. It was in the Florida State League at West Palm Beach, where the spring training is. That was a critical year in my career because my manager was Felipe Alou. And right. that's when Felipe got to know me very well. Um, he loved me as a defensive catcher behind the plate, and that's what helped me, I think, ultimately get my first call-up. 
couple of years in double A in 91, 92 in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, then triple A Ottawa in 93. That's when I got called up. Felipe was the manager and he was a fan of the national league style of game of having three catchers. So we had Darren Fletcher at the time that he'd yep. always have to pinch run for if he got into the game late. And, um, so that was ideal for me. Um, very fortunate, just defensively got called up. But it was cool because I think I got into about 20 games down the stretch. And that was my major league debut. And we were 10, 11 games behind the Phillies, I think, in the old NL East at that time. And we had a good run, made a good run in August and uh, got it within, I think we, we came up about three games short in the division. So for my first taste of the big leagues, I got into, I think, a lot of games late, which was awesome. Um, pretty important times and uh, in a pennant race. So, so July 28th, 93, you get called up for the Expos. That sounds familiar. Where was the game? I was in Ottawa playing for the Ottawa Lynx and Mike Quaddy was my manager. At the time I wasn't even playing every day. I was like a spare part. This, you know, I was a guy that didn't hit defensive kind of specialist guy. So I was just getting my playing time here and there. And after the game, I'll remember it. Cause we were in, the, I was in the bullpen that game. I don't know if it was extra innings, but we lost late. And Mike Quaddy, who was, I mean, you talk about somebody that can have an evil eye. This guy can lose it. And uh, I loved him as a manager. But he comes in the clubhouse after the game, after this tough loss. My locker is situated in a place. He's got to walk through the clubhouse to go down the hall to go to his office. Well, as he's coming through, he looked right at me with these evil eyes and with his index fingers said like, come here. And I'm thinking, holy shit. Well, what did I do wrong uh -huh. to lose this game? I didn't even play. And uh, I just thought maybe he's talking to me as one of the older guys that he's going to lay down the law. I don't know, but I just didn't think it was going to be good. Myself and Gil Heredia got called into the office. He sits back in his chair. He puts his feet up and he says, he looked at me kind of funny because Gil, I think had already been to the big league, but he said, you're going to the big leagues tomorrow. And I just, I think my body went numb because I wasn't doing anything special at the time to get a call up to the big leagues. And I said, you're joking. He said, no, I'm not. And he said, you're flying to Pittsburgh tomorrow morning. And I said, holy shit. So I got on the plane to Pittsburgh the next morning and made my debut, I think the next day at Three River Stadium. And you stuck the rest of the season, yeah? Yes, stayed the rest of the season. So that was 93 right before the- So, so you, go from, you go from buses in Ottawa- <laughs> To the big league. Some planes, some planes. Yeah, uh -huh, if you call them that. How, <laughs> how, uh, how big a change was that? They're worlds apart. That's the best way to describe it. Everybody thinks you move up from one level of A-ball to the next, and then from high A to double A and double A, triple A, how it's all one level, one level. Triple A to big leagues is not one level. It's an entirely different lifestyle. It's five-star hotels. It's great transportation, charter planes. It's way more money it's meal money everything it's everything is so much bigger and better and um it's a dream come true i mean that's why you play the game when you're when you're a pro when you sign that first contract your goal is to make it to the major leagues as sometimes maybe unrealistic as that may be you always believe that that is your goal and that you're going to do it and i was a different position i think because i wasn't a guy that hit a lot so i really had to do the defensive thing now is that going to get to the big leagues it can because, you know, a left-handed hitting catcher, those guys, they say, can play a long time. But, like, key word there is you have to hit. And I didn't hit a whole lot. So I didn't know if that was going to happen, but I felt I knew I could catch with anybody. And uh, Felipe, having managed me in 1990 in the Florida State League, was critical for me because that's when he got to know me real well, from calling a game to handling pitchers back there. And uh, that, I think, had a lot to do, if we were to ask him today, a lot to do with him calling me at that time because really they needed that extra catch. They didn't need a bat. They needed a, a defensive guy behind the plate. And you, you stuck with them, right? Stayed there for the rest of 93, got taken off the roster. So when we went to spring training in 94, it was back to AAA. Yep. And then, of course, the strike hit. No, that's, so what I was, I was, that's exactly why I was asking. Yeah, I was, I was hoping. Right then. Okay, there you go. So I was hoping to get called up in 94, especially the great team that they had. And then baseball ends in August, so there are the strike hits. The worst part of it all was coming back to spring training in 95. At that point, I'm a minor leaguer who spent some time in the big leagues a couple months, and now you're coming back and they're starting to talk about replacement players and all that, and that was ugly. That was just not fun at all. So you, so you did you, – you played in Florida for a bit? You had a couple with of the Marlins? With the Marlins? Yeah. Yeah, I became a minor league free agent in 96, and uh, they called me right away. 
looking for a veteran type guy. And that was perfect because some of the Expos brass had gone over to the Marlins. Right. So they were very familiar with me. And I was in AAA and, Charlotte, got a month up with the Marlins when Charles Johnson broke his thumb. And then you wrapped up in 98. 98, right? yes. So after, actually after 96 you, with the Marlins, I went back, I signed back with the Expos thinking it might be a shot to get back in the big leagues. Didn't happen. I was in Ottawa all year. My league free agent again. And this is the funny story because living here in Windsor, Ontario, across from Detroit, I mean, I went to Tiger Stadium a ton as a kid. My brothers brought me all the time. I grew up a Tiger fan since I was very little. And I was driving my father-in-law to the airport. So this is probably October of 97. And I'm a minor league free agent. And I heard on the sports news update on the half hour that I think it was Matt Walbeck that got traded to the Angels. And I'm not sure if Nevin came back in that trade. Whatever the case may be, my antenna went up thinking, they just traded a catcher. Maybe there's a domino effect. Maybe they're looking for someone. And I thought, I'll buzz my agent real quick. I said, hey, I just heard this. He said, what, do you want me to inquire to the Tigers? I said, yeah, what the heck? Worst thing to do is say no, right? Well, he calls me at 9 o'clock the next morning, and he says, do you want to be a Tiger? And I almost fell off my chair because uh -huh. I'm thinking, oh, my God. I mean, dreams do come true, but that would be something else. So not only did they sign me, but they also invited me to big league camp. So here I am pulling into a, the clubhouse my first day, and I hear this voice around the corner, and I look, and it's Ernie Harwell. Uh -huh. And it's just – I mean, it was just my – I was just melting. It was really, really awesome. So – Yes, got a call up later that season, spent the last couple of months uh, of the season in Detroit, and that was tremendous because I was playing in Toledo, commuting back and forth to Windsor just over an hour, which was great, but now I was uh, living at home and playing in the big leagues, and does it get any better? It's pretty cool. And so you're, you, you finished up with the, the hated Red Sox. Is that right? <laughs> I did. So 2000 rolled around, and I was um, pretty close to hanging them up. So my wife and I had our fourth child in 99, and I was at that point point going back and forth to the big leagues up and down and more in the minors than the majors that I was just starting to wonder and I was still young I was healthy and could play but it was just this family thing was going to be tough to continue to do this and I thought you know what I'm going to have this decision made for me when I'm a minor league free agent at the end of the season here in 99 we'll see if, I, if anybody contacts me I'll entertain it if not I'm not going to pursue a job well wouldn't you know it the first day I'm a minor league free agent I get a call from the Red Sox Again, some of the old Expos executives yeah. are in Boston That's now. Right, they went and, from uh, yeah, and the ironic part about all of this is the name Dave Dombrowski followed me throughout my career, and then how ironic in Detroit he ends up showing up here too. So, so we've been pretty close over the years. But, yeah, so the Red Sox called, and same thing, looking for that veteran catcher in AAA, and that's where I signed and I, uh, lasted half a season before I finally decided to hang him up and come home and be with the family. Okay, so <laughs> – like it, it's one, I got to tell you, like in terms of professional athletes, an amazing story. Seriously. Like, yeah. Good for you. Like it's, that's a great story. Um, so you leave baseball halfway through the 2000 season. The public doesn't hear from you from what I can see for 14 years. Like what happened between <laughs> 2000 and 2014? Well, let's start when the day I retired, I was in Pawtucket. And I had talked to my wife several nights on the phone after games, and it was just getting to the point where we made the decision, let's do it. So I decided to go to the ballpark the next day and retire. So I get to the ballpark early. Gary Jones was our manager at Triple A Pawtucket. And I went to, in early, probably around 1.32 o'clock, said, I'm going to tell them here and, and, and bail. And I get to the ballpark, and I'm starting to go into his office, but the lineup is already posted really early for some reason. And I'm playing. <laughs> so I thought, okay. Because I was playing like part-time myself, and Tim Spear was the other catcher. We were kind of splitting time. And I thought, okay, you know what? I'll play the game, and then I'll go into the office mm -hmm. after, and that'll be my last hurrah. Well, remember the name Tomo Oka? Yeah. He was pitching that night, and Tomo proceeds to throw a perfect game. Tomo throws a perfect game. Big celebration, of course, after. We're in the clubhouse, and it's a big celebration. Here I am, I think, like celebrating, but not really celebrating because I know what I'm about to do. Right. And I'm just sitting back, letting everybody enjoy it. Didn't want to kind of just disrupt the – the party came in the next morning <laughs> real quick and, and told Gary, so I retired. So what a way to go out. My last career game was that perfect game. That's awesome. Came home and it was the greatest thing I ever did because it's so hard to cut that cord. That was the toughest decision I've had in a long time because knowing that when you end this, that's it. That baseball career thing that all you've ever known for a long time is gone. So, but you know, it and, and you're not, greatest. and you're not 52. 
You know, no, you no, I, I, I had lots of game left. Yeah, no, I could have kept playing for a long time. I was no, no, but you're relatively you playing. You're you got a whole life ahead of you. Hopefully. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tons. And that's the key point because I got home. It was early, first week of June. The kids were getting out of school in a few weeks, and I had the whole summer at home and started coaching the, my son's baseball teams, my daughter's softball teams. Greatest thing. But when I retired, they were talking about Gary Jones and a lot of the people with the Red Sox. Everybody's I was hearing from other teams too, but the Red Sox were talking about, you know, if you want to start managing, let us know. And I said, well, no, this is why I'm coming home. I was hearing from some other teams, including the Tigers, you know, maybe you want to be a catching instructor because they wanted, they knew that I, the whole reason I retired was to be home more. So maybe a roving job, somewhere you're on the road half the time, home half the time. I was like, yeah, you know, I just don't want to be away. This is why I came home. So Randy Smith was the GM at the time, and he was the GM in Detroit in 98 when I was there. Steve Lubradich was his assistant. Steve said to me, and I still see Steve to this day. It's hilarious. He's a scout with the Cleveland, I believe. And he says, uh, why don't you come over and help out with batting practice? It'll be a good way to stay involved in the game. You're close, 20 minutes from Comerica Park here. So I started doing that. Now, I don't even know what year. Probably 02, because what I also started doing when I came home is I started knocking off my degree part-time. I had oh, only done one year. Yeah, I only did one year of college. So while I was doing the stay home dad thing, my wife was working. We had four kids and I thought I'll take one course at a time. So I was doing that. And then after a couple of years, I took two courses. I had started doing the Tigers thing where I would go over in the afternoon, like at two o'clock, two thirty, put the uniform on, go in the cage, soft toss, do all the different things, throw some BP if they needed. All that BP would finish on the field around five thirty. I run inside at Comerica Park, change my clothes, get in my car and bolt back over the border to go to one of my kids' games or practices. Maybe, Turns out I ended up- uh, Maybe hit the casino or two first, but okay. No time for, <laughs> no, 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 no time. But it was just crazy because the, the timing was great, but I was running around ragged getting to the kids' games and practice, but it was great. I got to coach their teams, I was home, yet I still kept my foot in that door with Major League Baseball, which I thought was cool because I thought, you know, someday maybe when the kids are all off to college or something, maybe I'll get back involved in the game. But it's a perfect way to stay involved. I ended up doing it for 12 years, I think, oh. while I continued to do my, um, do my degree part-time where I was, I stepped it up to two courses at a time. And then when I saw the light at the end of Tunnel 3, because I had like 30 courses to do because I only did one year at Central Michigan. So got that done in, I think, 07, I finished my degree. Yeah, I did the Faculty of Human Kinetics at the University of Windsor. Um, um, most of it right on, on site too. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a lot a uh, lot to balance, but it's uh, something just one of those things that I always want to do for myself, but also for my kids too to to see that you know the importance of education in our family. And yeah, so it was, it was just one of those things uh, that I always kind of that unfinished business that I wanted to take care of, and I did. I was able to continue doing the uh, the Tigers thing for years before we, you know, basically ended when uh, when our son got sick. Yeah, that. So I had no idea. Um, again, condolences. Um, th there's a phenomenal article slash interview with you. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sure you know it because you participated in it. But for those listening, it's it's in the DriveMagazine.com, which. I've never heard of before. Um, mm -hmm. With all due respect to those folks, um, I assume that the drive was about driving cars. I'm not sure whether it is or it isn't. Um, yeah, no, I think it's just the local Windsor Magazine, the local well, scene. It's uh, if you're going to read it, it's thedrivemagazine.com, and just do a search for Joe Siddle. Uh, <laughs> make sure you have a box of Kleenex, because uh, <laughs> I was not expecting that. I, I had no idea, and I wasn't expecting it. Um, you've an unbelievable story and this certainly took a twist. So if you can, what happened? So our youngest son, Kevin, we have four, we have four children, Brooke, our daughter's now 27. Uh, Brett is 25, our son, and then a daughter, 23, Mackenzie and Kevin would be 21. He, um, I was coaching his baseball team and honestly, we were at a baseball game that night. This is uh, 2013 for those who are 13. He was uh, 14 years old, 14 years old, early August, coaching his baseball team. And uh, we were playing our crosstown rivals. I think it was like on a Wednesday night because he had a really good game. This is the only real, I'm not touting my son. The reason yeah. I say this is because this first time up, he hits the ball in the right center gap, round second and comes to third for a triple. Dad's coaching third base because I'm the manager of the team. And he gets there and he is just all out of breath. And I'm thinking, wow, I mean, that's, I know that was a, 
tough, <laughs> tough run right there, but it was kind of a little bit more than I anticipated. I said, you okay, man? He said, yeah, just, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. He's huffing and puffing. Next time up, he hits a double. And he comes around third and scores. And one of my other coaches says, you better check on Kev. He's really out of breath. I'm like, what the heck's going on here? So a little croupy sounding almost, you know, yeah, and my yeah. wife's the physician when he got home, kind of looked into it. Well, chest x-ray later comes back and he's got a massive tumor on his chest. Oh, and um, I'm getting better at telling these stories. It's been a while now, but time is a, time is a good thing. And so we uh, were rushed to London. We were in the hospital in Windsor, rushed to London, which is about an hour and a half from where we are. And it's a pediatric oncology center. And he's got to be intubated because they need to intubate him right away mm -hmm. to start the chemo to shrink the tumor. At the time, we were informed that could be okay. We're going to use this chemo regimen and outlook could have been pretty good. Uh, assuming it was what they thought it was when, when he did it, it was a lymphoma yeah. and a T cell lymphoma. And he um, responded well, boom. So he ends up up in a hospital room and things are okay for about a month and then start the next chemo regimen. It helped. Terrible, terrible, terrible process, as you can imagine. As most people know, cancer is a bad word, but so is the treatment, the process going through all the chemo and everything. And um, then another one started. What happened is it kept coming back. So yeah. the regimen happened and it came back. Next regimen started and it came back. Um, so much so, yeah, we started a couple different regimens, didn't work. We ended up in Toronto at Sick Kids for a clinical trial. Not good. And by that time, that's when they're kind of feeding us the news that, that this is not going well. And this is only like November. So you're talking mid-August to probably mid-November when we're kind of getting the news that this isn't good. So that was just when your world comes crashing down. And my wife, Tamara, and I were with them every day. So we're very fortunate to do that. Our other kids, Mackenzie was in high school, still here in Windsor. Brett, our son, was at playing baseball at Canisius College in Buffalo. Brooke was a goalie at the University of Guelph going to school there. So they would shoot there on weekends to try to visit us with Kev, whether we were in London or when we were in Toronto. So they were amazing. Uh, we, we come from an area, I mean, our family's very supportive, of course, and we needed all of that. But man, our community where we are here, we're seeing stuff online, what they're doing and the well wishes and the people. And it was just, it was remarkable. And I say that because it continues to this day. It really is unbelievable. And uh, those are the things that help you, I think, get through, or at least now when we reflect back or that we still can refer to those stories, it warms your heart because for something so traumatic, so terrible to happen in someone's lives, we, uh, we see that there are a lot of good has come and that's, that's refreshing. It's good to see. But uh, Kev um, passed away in February. It was, it was just terrible. And uh, he, was, he was doing his homework. He was enrolled in his freshman, season, freshman year or grade nine at his high school because his principal said he is a student here. And yeah. he tried to make it there. We made it home from the hospital for like less than a week. He had a little window there where things seemed settled. But it didn't last long. He right. starts having this pain up by yeah. his lymph node up here again. And all hell broke loose again. But there was the one day, and I'll never forget it, we were walking down the street right in front of this house that I'm sitting in right now, just going out for a little walk for fresh air. And it was kind of the test of, can you make it to school tomorrow? And he didn't want to go. And I'm like, if he doesn't want to go, I know why he doesn't want to go, because yeah. he doesn't want to go and be like this and stand out. And he's bald now, and he's out of breath, and it was still a lot of work. And he didn't want to be that feel sorry for me guy. That's just the way he was. So I knew why I didn't want to go, but sure enough, it didn't matter because we were back in London the next day anyway. And so I kept passed away in February. It was a, a horrible, horrible six months. And uh, I mean, today, how are we doing as a family? Great. We really are. I mean, my wife's unbelievable. She's kind of been my rock. She won't admit to that, but she is because she's better than me at this stuff, at, at handling this stuff. Um, our two daughters are amazing. So is Brett, but they're all, they're all into this grateful thing. That's the word they keep using. My one daughter has this little kind of her little brand or business that's called AOG Windsor and it's attitude of gratitude. And she goes and speaks to kids in high schools and different places. But that word gratitude is everywhere. Now we all have our green bracelets that we wear and we see them throughout our community. And it's, it's no one fights alone. Hashtag FFK, which was fight for Kevin. It's turned into LFK now live for Kevin. Um, we just finished, uh, uh, my, a lot of my buddies and friends that ran the org, I ran a baseball organization here, the Windsor stars and from eight, eight years old up to 15. And of course, since I've been gone now, a lot of my buddies have taken it over and their wives and families do all out of the fundraising. All well, they've, they started a tournament for Kevin. I think it's been five or six years now. It's the Kevin Siddle Invitational. 
and this year is going to be in June. And I actually finally took the time off that I was going to be at it this year. And because of COVID, it was had to be canceled because the parks were all closed. So instead, they came up with this genius idea to do a cannon bottle drive. Well, I say genius idea because it seems like everybody's drinking more and nobody's returning their cans and bottles. So it was on Saturday, this past Saturday. And I think they're raising upwards of $20,000. It was unbelievable. And there are a few great local charities. The Ronald McDonald's Charities is one of them. Uh, our We Care for Kids Foundation at our Windsor Regional Hospital. And then this child can organization that helps a lot of families with kids that are in the pediatric oncology unit in London. So a lot of good happening. Um, we were all there to help out, to try to do our part. But it's, it's astonishing for us to look around us in our community here and see what people are doing. It's, it's pretty cool. I've got kids that come up to our set in the stadium at the Rogers Center in Toronto. I've got parents that bring their little kids and they've got the hat from the tournament. Hey, we were at Kevin's tournament last year. It's remarkable how from Windsor, a lot of the teams from the greater Toronto area come down now too. And it's uh, pretty special. It, it, a lot of those things warm our hearts and um, it's helpful. It's helpful. It's, it's, it's good to see. One thing we learned being in the hospital for six months is that there are a lot of other families impacted by cancer and trauma and just terrible things in their lives. I'm sure most people can reach out somewhere and know somebody that they've lost to cancer or has experienced just not even cancer, just experienced tragedies in their lives. I think the word is perspective. Hmm. You, uh, you certainly gain perspective. I don't have yours. I can tell you that. Thankfully, I don't have yours. Hmm. Uh, but heart certainly goes out to you, your wife and your kids and, and everybody involved. Uh, I'm going to ask that if you would, after the, after we're done, if you could send me some, I, I see the link, I see the website, Kevin's Invitational, um, but there's nowhere on there to donate. And to the effect that people here are, would like to get a bracelet or would like to donate. Hopefully you can send me that when I post this, we'll include it in the, uh, in the site. It is, uh, as I said, I, I read the story. I, I, as I do, I do a lot of research before I talk to folks and that was not, <laughs> something I was expecting to see. Um, but uh, listen, like the fact you guys are together and, and especially with what's going on right now, you guys certainly have a lot better yeah. perspective or a lot different perspective than the rest of us do. Yeah. It's, you know, when we, when we look to, when we look back and I mean, I, for the first few, I, I had a really difficult time talking like this, of the first few years. And everybody's different. That's one thing I've learned too. My daughters are fantastic. Brett, my son's is a little quieter, but the daughters, they're just like unbelievable. It's, they're just full of gratefulness. And it's just, and it's the message I get from them and from my wife. And it's so true. It's just, I got to keep it. I got to, for me, I got to keep tricking myself. And what it is, is they're so grateful for the time they had with Kevin and for all the things that they have now. And it's like, you put all that, not, not in the rear view mirror. It's not that we forget about Kevin, but for me personally, I'll be honest, Jonah, between you and I, it's like, and everybody listening, it's definitely not between me, you and I. for me, that's how it works. And yeah. I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's what keeps me going in the forward your, direction. Your, co and your we coping all know. mechanism. It's absolutely your own personal coping mechanism. That's yeah, why I use the word perspective. And we all know that we need to keep going in that forward direction because the other direction is not a good place to be. All right. I'm going to let you take a deep breath here for a couple of seconds. <laughs> While there's no professional real sports going on, there are still lots of opportunities for people to wager their money. Uh, NASCAR is back. You've got Madden and NBA 2K simulations, UFC, and of course, online poker. Uh, if you watch the last dance or the final dance, sorry, and I'm sure you did, um, the folks at betonline.ag also have some cool interviews with Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, Craig Hodges, Ron Harper, talking about the documentary. I'd love to know their real thoughts on Michael Jordan talking about that night when he walked into the hotel room and, and one room was one side there was weed, another side there was coke and hookers on the other. That, that must have done wonders for his cell phone that night. Anyway, there's, there's lots of. Uh, Lots of fun still to be had at betonline.ag. Use the promo code MYPOD100. Again, that's MYPOD100, and you'll get a top-up on your first deposit. As you know, one of uh, the most important things right now, not that it's never important, is sleep. My friends at Sleep Envy offer an incredible, I can tell you because we have one, uh, incredible mattress experience. Customize your mattress by taking the one-minute quiz. 
It ships in a box right to your door. You get to try it for 100 nights in the comfort of your home. Shipping is always free. If you're not satisfied, you can send it back also free. Use PressRow, P-R-E-S-S-R-O-W at checkout and get 25% off. And they're giving 10% of sales to Feed Hungry uh, during the coronavirus. Again, that's sleepenvy.com. Enter PressRow at the checkout for 25%. Wow, yes, 25% off. That takes up over half the, and that takes up care of the tax and leaves a little bit left behind. Um, you know, graduation is upon us. We just had Mother's Day. Graduation is upon us. And while you might be saving on not having to buy the prom dress or the graduation party, you still want to get your graduate something. My friends at Vanderhoot Jewelry have a really good deal for you. It's V-A-N-D-E-R-H-O-U-T Jewelry. Ships straight to your house, Toronto-based. Ability to customize your order and what you're looking for. Customer service team ready to help right away. The code is SPORTS, and that will give you 20% off the entire purchase. Again, SPORTS, S-P-O-R-T-S, all caps. 20% off your purchase from my friends at Vanderhoot Jewelry, V-A-N-D-E-R-H-O-U-T-J-E-W-E-L-R-Y.com. Now I'm going to take a deep breath. Um, so you go through this tragedy, you, you miraculously survive through it. And still, you have another moment. Like, nothing that you've said to me has, has talked about baseball broadcaster. Uh, <laughs> you're clearly articulate. You're smart. Um, you obviously had a pulse so you could get a college scholarship, but you went back and got your degree in kinesiology. How does one transition from bullpen catcher extraordinaire to play-by-play -play for a Major League Baseball team? So Kevin had just passed away. It was February 2014. And I get this random email from Jerry Howarth, the radio voice of the Toronto Blue Jays. I knew who Jerry was because he was the legendary voice of the Blue Jays. He knew who I was just being Canadian and having played in the big leagues while I was working with the Tigers all those years. When the Blue Jays came to town, I'd see him down on the field and nothing more than a quick hello. As I said, I didn't really know him personally, but just to, Mutual respect, said hello real quick, and that was about all. So I got an email from him, and he apparently told me he got my email address from Bob Elliott. Sends me an email of condolences. This is probably about a week after the funeral. And, of course, we're just still in a fog around here, and we're just – he expressed his condolences. When I replied to him, it was just a simple kind of thank you so much, much appreciated. Thanks for us being in your thoughts. And – I said, you know, look forward to seeing you when uh, the Blue Jays come to Detroit, I think in June. And then I added a little bit more, and I just don't know what it was word for word, but it was something along the lines of, or maybe in the broadcast booth one day. No reason <laughs> other than that he's the broadcaster. So I, like, I, don't, I don't know why I put that last line. And I'm sure Jerry would tell you to this day, that line was why he replied within like minutes. It's, and the reply was like, how about right now? Well, Jack Morris had just finished his one season in the Blue Jays radio booth with Jerry, and he was going back home to Minnesota. So they were currently looking. They were kind of like rushed for time too, but looking for a replacement. My understanding was that they had a couple people on the go. They were trying to – he said, if you're interested – actually, I replied to his email, and I said, what are you talking about, first of all? Right. What do you mean? So he explained that situation. He said, you know, if you're interested, I'll pass your name on to the program director, Don Collins, at the time at 590 The Fan. And – I looked at my wife across the kitchen. And I said, I might have a job opportunity. <laughs> she said, what are you talking about? Again, we were just in a fog. But I thought, well, whatever. Let's just see where this goes. So he tells me that um, Don's going to give me a call Monday morning at 9 o'clock. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Sure. Okay. Thanks, Jerry. See you later. Wow. My phone calls Monday. My phone rings Monday morning at 9 o'clock. And it says 590 the fan. <laughs> it was Don Collins. I think I talked to Don for about a half hour. But to be honest with you, we didn't really talk about broadcasting. We talked more about what we had just been through. And Don was just great. He was just kind of feeling me out, I think. By the end of the phone call, he said, I remember him saying, like, Joe, you know, I think what would be best here is, why don't we just leave things for now? Because he knew what we had just yeah, gone yeah. through now. And uh, he said, you know, maybe during the summer, we'll bring you to Toronto, bring your wife up for the weekend and show you around, show you how things work. If this is something maybe you're interested in for the future. So I said, sounds great. Well, I don't know the exact timeline, but it was probably Within days later, he comes back. Oh, you know what it was? My wife and I went to um, Charlotte, North Carolina that weekend because our son, Brett, was playing baseball at Canisius. And 
big decision. What, what do you want to do? Do you want to go and travel with the team as their first weekend? And he said, yes, I want to go. I want to go. And of course, this is probably not a good time to go play baseball and try to, but he wanted to be with his team and make the trip. So he did. And we thought we would go too. So we went down to be with him for the weekend. So we did that while I'm there. I get an email from Don saying, are you available for a, for a call or something? I said, well, I'm in North Carolina for the weekend. He said, we'd like to maybe have you on a show, one of our shows in the morning. So like Monday morning, he said, I told him I was in North Carolina. He said, you know what, when you get back Sunday night, give me a call. We'll arrange this. So I did. And right away he said, can you be on the Jeff Blair show tomorrow morning? And I, the feeling I was getting is they wanted to hear me. <laughs> they wanted to hear yeah. me talk baseball, talk sports. So whatever, here I am now, kind of Sunday night brushing up on my Toronto Blue Jays baseball at the time because I was a Tigers fan. I grew up a yeah. Tigers fan, and that's just the way it was. So I'm kind of like brushing up, hoping, you know, if they do talk Blue Jays, I kind of have a little idea of what I'm talking about. So I was on Blair's show, and Blair was in Montreal when I was a player. He was with the Gazette back then. Yeah. So I knew who he was, hadn't seen him in a long time. Was on a show for about 10 minutes. And then uh, Don calls and says, wow, great. You know, so I, I said, okay. And so he said, now, do you, do you think you would be able to make time to maybe come down to spring training? And I was like, sure. <laughs> For how long? Like, how long do you want me to pack? He said, well, is there any chance you can leave like this weekend? So the time frame we're talking in, we must have been getting close to end of February. Okay. First, maybe, maybe mid, late February when games were starting, of course. And uh, I said, Sure. By this time, I know in my head, and I remember telling my wife, I said, you know, I'm going, I'm diving into this head, head first now. I'm just going to do anything they want. Let's see what it, where it goes, just for the hell of it. So I did, and he said, can you come this weekend? I said, sure. How long should I pack for? Well, I'll pack for a week. You know, we'll do some games. We'll see, whatever. I said, well, I can, how long can you come for? I said, come for the whole month if you want, whatever you want, I said. Yeah. So he said, do that. I said, great. So I'm telling my wife this, and so we're laughing. Well, he calls back a few hours later, and he said, any chance you can be on a plane Wednesday? <laughs> so now we're like, wait a minute. Okay. I said, sure. And I think I was on the phone looking at my wife and she's kind of like, what is going on? So I said, sure. So I got on a plane. I have to get my day straight. Let's say I got on the plane Wednesday. I get down there. I think we had all gone out for dinner. Some sports that people were on there. Thursday, I go to the ballpark. It's the first game. Blue Jays are playing at Clearwater against the Phillies, but they do their BP and everything in Dunedin. I go there. It's going to be my first game with Jerry on the radio. And Jerry and I are down the right field line at the stadium while they're taking BP. And he's basically giving me broadcasting 101 in about 20 minutes. Yeah. More so than anything, not, not what to say to me, but you know, when to let him allow me to call the pitcher's delivery, all the little semantics you know that you need to know. I said, okay, I was trying to register all this stuff. So sure, when did our first game in Clearwater? I thought it went okay. I was probably talking a million miles an hour because that's what I tend to do and I always have to slow myself down but that I thought went pretty good and Jerry thought it went well so I get an email from Don that night he says uh, you good for tomorrow's game I said sure so I did tomorrow the next game's game go to the game I get an email like as soon as the game ended I've got an email from can you meet me for dinner so met him for dinner and I was offered the job and I mean, offer the job like 162, because I had said, I'm going to go, never mind, you don't have to worry about two and three people splitting this job. You know, that's what I had done yeah. a couple weeks ago. So he offered me the job and I accepted it. So there it was. And before we knew it, this was probably yeah, later in February, probably a few weeks after our son's funeral. Now I'm a major league broadcaster. <laughs> <laughs> Can't draw it up, can you? Next, you're going to tell me you're getting ready to go to space, you know, because <laughs> the oh, likelihood man. of those three things, right? Like, it was so crazy. March 1st, you, you get hired. You're, you're the, the new Playboy Playboys with Jerry Howarth. There so, it is. Okay, it was March 1st. So you, you walk into the booth for, for opening day at the Sky Dome. What was that like? I don't even remember. I don't remember what it was like because I did do the rest of the spring games. So that was a great training ground for me. Um, spring training games, got to practice. And I mean, if you, if you need a mentor or somebody to show you the ropes, Jerry's the guy, right? So I was very fortunate to, I mean, I'm sure anybody else could have been very good too, but because Jerry's such a pro and he was working with me with all the cadence and coming in and out of commercials and, and the, the, your analysis, you want to come in, don't make it too long, shorten it up, make your, make your long 35 second thought. 15 to 20, be sharper with it. So I was always getting those little cues from him. And um, I just, I remember it being, being fun, but it was still work at the beginning because I had never done this before. 
and experience is a wonderful thing in anything we do, right? And the more I kind of got going, it was it was more conversational, I think. And and Jerry, credit Jerry for that, because I'm sure he he steered that ship and and helped me along and teed me up the right ways and tried to make it easy for me early on because it was so new. But yeah, I just remember things getting more and more comfortable. And to this day, I look back thinking, what a great thing to start on radio because when you're on the radio. You have to worry about what you look like and present and how you look and articulate things. You want to sound good, but TV is a different animal in that regard because now you're actually on camera as well. So that training I had on the radio side was phenomenal. And I got to fill in when uh, Tabby was on vacation. I filled in on the TV side about a dozen games, I think the first few years too, with Buck. So I get to the TV side and then I've got Buck help me along those. It was just phenomenal. I'll never forget Buck one day. I have to always tell this story because I remember it so vividly. We're taping our pregame hit up in the booth at the Rogers Center, and we're going back and forth, and I must have butchered it like three times. And that's always the joke. Okay, scrap it, take two. Well, I must have butchered it three times. He finally stopped. He looked right at me. He said, look in that camera and just pretend you're talking to your son about baseball. (laughs) And it it was like this 1,000-pound weight just got taken off my shoulders. I was like, oh. Because I was, I was scripted, yeah, yeah. right? I had it kind of all scripted where I wanted to go. Then the video is going to come up, and you can peek back at your script if you want. And I was, I was too robotic. It was just, you know, way too scripted, I think, is the best way to put it. So when he said that, I was like, wow, like just talk kind of like what we are right now. Just talk baseball. And that helped me a ton. And I, I still, to this day, have to remind myself of that. I'm like a prepared guy. I, I always have to prepare. Like, that's the way I was as a player. When I do things, that I want to make sure that I'm ready. And, and I think it comes from being a player. I was always like, whether it was football or basketball or baseball, that's just my, my nature, I think. What well, spilled into this job, too. So on the radio, I had to be prepared. On TV, I had to be prepared. So, but then I think sometimes it can work against me. So I'm still learning to balance that, to let it go a little bit more and just speak as opposed to being so scripted. So I want to be mindful of your time, and I haven't gotten to like 90% of my questions. That's okay. So- you go ahead. So I'm gonna to have to bug you to come back another time, but there is there's two things that I think I'd like to talk about, and I I'm gonna have you back. Um, the Jose Bautista story is one of the best stories that I've I've read, and I'd love to hear your take on it. About what you read? Just about former former player learning the lesson as a broadcaster, and what a lot of people don't understand, and we cover sports media here, is the written and the spoken word will affect your ability to do your job to the effect that you actually want to do your job. Anyone can get in front of a microphone and a keyboard and, and, and have an opinion. But if you're going to interact with the players, they are people too, and they have reactions um, justified or not <clears throat> to what you say or write. You didn't write it. You made a comment about Bautista, and I understand it came back and affected the relationship, at least short term. Can you share the story with us? Yeah, so it was my first year, and um, mindful of all of those things, and you're learning the broadcasting thing. And, and I've always felt, I want to be honest, because that's kind of who I am. I, I, one thing I've, I've tried to continue to be, it's a little slogan I've always had, be yourself. It's who you do best. But don't try to be somebody else. Be yourself. And part of that is being objective given your insight and opinion, but at the same time, and you'll hear former players always say this, but that are into broadcasting, we know how hard it was down on the field. So be careful how you critique. Well, I've always thought, I think you can be very fair and critique in a professional manner without burying anybody, without just totally obliterating someone. So Jose, where I want to say it was the Orioles. It was at Rogers center. I think it was a Sunday afternoon game. And you know how Jose would bicker with umpires and he would disagree with them and he would get his chirps in and walk away and chirp some more and he would just never let it go. And I want to say it was the sixth inning of like a 1-1 game and he got called out of strike three, bickering with the umpire. And I think it was Bill Welke. He kept, he allowed him to talk. He allowed him to talk. Finally, Bill put out his hand. And when he put out his hand, he was almost like pushing his hand saying, time to go, Jose, head to your dugout toward the third base Blue Jays dugout. And when he did that, Jose walked a step or two and then came back and he started chirping again and Welke tossed him. And the worst part about it for me, I'm watching this and I've had teammates like that and I've probably done it, but I mean, I've watched teammates. 
the worst part about it for me was that well he allowed him to do he allowed him to go probably further than he needed to but because he was jose bautista it was a longer leash so he gave him the signal that's enough get going and he started going but then he had to come back and that's when he ejected him so i said on the air what a mistake that was and how bautista had the longer leash i don't even know how i said it to be honest with you but to that effect that the umpire allowed him to speak his mind he did he told him that's enough get going but he came back for more and got tossed. And I went on to say that what a big mistake it was from Baptista because it was a tie ball game and his spot's going to come up again in the order. Sure enough, it did in the ninth, I think. And so he's hurting his team is my point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it had to be five or six or seven days later. I'm just walking through the Blue Jays clubhouse. I haven't talked to Jose since, I don't think. And not by design. I just, I hadn't heard from him. He never said a word to me. I'm walking by the clubhouse. And again, he didn't come up to me. I saw him sitting at his locker, and I want to say he had two home runs or something the day before. He had a really good day, whatever. And I was just – sometimes I'll do that, create small talk, say something to somebody. It might lead to a conversation. Hey, I might use something on the air that night, whatever the case may be. That's why it's great to have players and coaches as resources. And so I walked over to him. He was at his locker. I said, Jose, nice job last night, seeing it well, or something like that. And he looked at me and said, what do you care? You don't even think I want to play anyway. And I, I honestly was dumbfounded. I couldn't even really remember the incident that was like, whatever, five, six days ago. I, I didn't know what he meant. I, I kind of looked at him like, what are you talking about? He said, I heard you on the radio the other day when I got tossed and you said that I didn't even want to be in the game. And I was like, so right then, it was the best part of this story for me looking back as a young broadcaster. Right then I had a decision to make. Am I going to be myself, play hardball and tell him how I feel? Or am I going to say, oh, my God, this is Jose Bautista. Like, I need to apologize. I made a big mistake here. And I don't know what went through my brain there, but whatever it was, my gut said, be you. Be yourself. And I did. And I said, Jose, I'm not sure what you heard. I played hardball with him. I was like, yeah. well, I'm not sure what you heard. He said, oh, I heard the radio was on the clubhouse when I came in here. I said, well, I don't know how you interpreted it, but I'll tell you what I meant and because i didn't know the exact words yeah. that came out of my mouth in the broadcast either but i said what i meant was that umpire gave you a long leash and you kept chirping and chirping you walked away he told you to leave and you came back and he tossed you you're the one that went too far and i said and it cost you your team you cost your team because now you're not available for that next at bat later in the ninth inning oh yeah you're saying this and he kind of went back and forth with me well you know i think i was at his locker for about 15 minutes it turned out to be a great conversation. He shakes my hand at the end. And I looked at him and I said, you ever got a problem? Let me know. I'm glad we had this conversation. But if I don't stop at his locker that day, we don't have that conversation. And who knows? Maybe for the next three years, he's still holding this grudge. So my message, I guess, or your original question as a broadcaster, I have to be who I am. I'm, I'm just, my personality isn't that I'm not going to be this outrageous critic that is just going to bear. It's not my personality. And if that doesn't work in the job, then I'm not going to have this job. I'm going to be me. I'm going to be objective and I'm going to give my insight and my critique compliments, whatever the case may be. That's who I am. If it works for my job, it works, but I can't be somebody I'm not, I'm not going to be phony and just tear people apart when they make mistakes. Cause if that's what the job entails, it's not for me. So I just try to be myself. So we're going to end on this and I am going to have you back because we haven't even talked about like what's going on in the world today, but I want to ask you this. And I think you have the unique insight to be able to answer it. There are those who cover sports who the only knock on them may, well, one of the only knocks on them might be quote, what do you know? You never played. Um, and they, they may have years of experience and or education behind them male or female, but how could they possibly com I'm not making the argument, but you know, this is out there because you have colleagues who are in the business uh, that never played. So that's one comment. The other is, yeah, you're just a dumb jock. You played one position. You did this, you did that. Maybe you never won. Do you think in your experience, is it a hindrance or is it a benefit having played before as it relates to relationships with athletes and coaches and, and doing your job from that perspective? Well, it's a tremendous benefit because you get this instant credibility from the players and coaches that you've played. And now getting back to what you're first saying, I mean, so I played in the big leagues parts of four seasons, a little bit here and there. I didn't have the 15 year major league career. I wasn't an all-star. So do I have the credibility? Something like that has probably not. 
but hopefully with the insight I'm providing and the job I'm doing, I'd like to think that you gain that credibility and that insight, it, it works and, and fans appreciate that. The audience appreciates that. But as a player, I think you do get that instant credibility. I mean, until you butcher it, but yeah, I think players for sure are a little warmer to you. They're, they're a little more open to you because they know you've been there and they'll cite some examples. Oh, you remember when this happened and this, this, this goes on. And they'll tell you things like that off the record. So I think that's a huge benefit. The part that's difficult is, is what we just finished talking about is you have to be objective. You have to call a spade a spade sometimes. You can't say when that ball rolls through Josh Donaldson's legs that, oh, that's a tough one. That might have taken a bad hop because you don't want Josh to get mad at you. No, no, no. You start doing that again. That's you can't do it. So there's a fine line there. Um, is your question who, what, what's more beneficial? Like, is it beneficial to be a former player? Hundred percent, I think it is, because I think those players will relate to you a lot better. I think players will relate to other people that haven't played differently. I don't want to say not as well, but they're not. They're, they're probably going to be more apt to those people to say who are writing articles or saying on TV uh, about the mistakes you're making or about your, your struggles. Like, seriously, this person's really – or I go to my backhand and uh, let's say Smokey goes to his backhand and doesn't come up with a ball. But as a former player, you may have seen what that ball did, that spin. But people that didn't play might not have known that what the ball does off a left-hander's bat, it actually has top spin. You know, those little details of the game that I think players will give – a former player, a little bit more credibility because we probably see that part of the game better than maybe somebody just writing about the error they made as one example. Does that help? Yeah, yeah. I just, it's, a, it's an interesting dichotomy because, mm -hmm. I mean, on the one sense, you know the rules. You know parts of the clubhouse you can and can't go into. You know things that you're allowed to ask and not allowed to ask. Um, I, I just, I wonder, you know, it's a different perspective, that's all. And I do also, I think, and I wonder, I also wonder if the fact that you weren't a superstar yeah. gives you a greater perspective to the general athlete as opposed to the superstar, because you know how hard you have to work and how good you have to be to stick around forever. So on that note right there, what you just said, I think there's something very true about that, that, so I was that player that had to bust his tail just to be yeah. barely good enough to get to the big league. So you've always had to work hard. It's in your trade. It's in your nature. That's who you are. So when I started, I was probably going to be a very hard worker at broadcasting and trying to be the best broadcaster I can be. I do think one's related to the other. Um, I find the biggest benefit. That doesn't mean that a guy that played for 17 years in the big leagues can't be a good broadcaster. Just different. But just different. Now, do guys in the clubhouse look at me as kind of like that little wink, wink, like the guy barely played in the biggest? I'm sure they do, but I hope my work that they see and hear the insight, hopefully sometimes they go, damn, where'd you come up with that? That's pretty good stuff right there. But what I think is the best part of, and when you say, yes, yeah, some things are on the record, some are off. If I'm talking to Trent Thornton about the game he just pitched yesterday. And I'll say, Trent, you went to a lot more curveballs today than cutters. Well, he may give me some information that's not to be shared because he's going to say, I'm going to my cutter more. We talked about it. This, like he may give me some of that. Now what I'll do is I will spin that in a way where I didn't necessarily talk to Trent Thornton to find this, but I will bring up the fact that he threw way more curveballs, and the cutter just hasn't been as effective for him. So you can use that information. Right. I will go to a guy like that when I see something, uh, it could be Grichik say, but when I see something, I know how I'm recovering. Jamie and I are covering it in a conversation in the show tonight. I know where I want to go. I know what I think. I know what I saw in video. I know where I'm going. But I may go to that guy during the day if I catch him to either confirm what I'm thinking or maybe kind of nullifies what I'm thinking. But it doesn't mean I'm going to change my thought. Right. It's, it's just you, those are resources that are great to have because you're right there, hands on with them. Doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Uh, I've, done, I've, I've thought about some things. Say, say it's a grit you're kidding about what he's doing with this bat. I see you're about doing it. He'll be like, no, this isn't true. This is just an example. Hitter might say, no, I haven't really changed that. <laughs> and I'll be like, dude, I've watched the video. It's different, right? So you, you can't, he might, he might be lying to me and saying he hasn't changed anything or he doesn't want anybody in the media to know he changed anything with his bat tip or whatever it is to get his hands positioned. So those sorts of things are great resources. 
But ultimately, yeah, it's my opinion and my insight that I'm going to live and die with. We're going to stop here. <laughs> and we're going to agree that you're going to come back. Like this baseball labor situation, I am an optimist. And I think everybody's drawn a line in the sand right now or maybe unzipped for a good measure. Um, I think they're going to figure it out. I think the stakes are too high. When they do, and we actually know that they're going to come back, I'm hoping you'll come back because I've got, I actually want to talk about baseball. I want to talk <laughs> about the transition out of the booth into the, uh, into the station, if you will. Sure. And uh, just lots of great, like, this has been awesome. Uh, I've really appreciated getting to know you a little bit and uh, I'm great. hoping you'll come back another time. I will do that, Jonah. My pleasure. And please send me, uh, we'll talk after, but please, I, I want to get those links up. I know people will want to help and, and do their part if they can. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the day. And we look forward to hearing your voice again soon. Sounds good, Jonah. Until we speak again. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.